Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. And today we're going to be talking about computer science kind of in general, but also our personal experience with it and where we think it's going in the future and, and kind of a little bit about the history. Although the history is so gigantic, we won't really be able to do it justice, but we're going to at least mention some important parts of it. Just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. So Eric, tell me about what you've been doing recently, getting ready to apply to this uh, computer science boot camp that you're you're interested in. Yeah, so this uh, boot camp largely does things in uh, JavaScript, at least for the beginning. And so I've been learning all of the JavaScript syntax that is relevant. And uh, there's a lot of topics as well that are are really prevalent things like higher order functions is one where you have a function uh, that does something right it's like a set of commands that takes in input and gives out an output mm -hmm. but you can actually have in JavaScript you can have one of the input parameters just like you would pass in a number or a string of characters or something like that you can pass in an entire function as one of those parameters uh -huh. And it's, it's really kind of cool and weird because JavaScript treats it just like any other data type. Yeah. Interesting. And Yeah. Can you, can you pass a function to a function to a function? Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. You can chain them however long you Arbitrarily want. Arbitrarily long. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, know, I know JavaScript kind of gets a lot of hate, which I don't totally understand. But mm -hmm. have you, are you aware of any of that? Um, I can see why it might garner some. It's it's weird. It's like a weird conglomeration of different approaches to computer science, I think. Mm -hmm. Um and, and and the reason why that is is because the JavaScript language has been designed to implement different paradigms of of logic. So one you may be familiar with is called object-oriented programming. Mhm. Mm which uh, I guess we'll go into later. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll touch on that. And the other is functional programming, and uh, just like all, it's all functions as opposed to it's all objects that represent things. Mm -hmm. And what's so crazy is that these are two different paradigms that have evolved in different other languages, 
and JavaScript found a common ground. Like uh, it, you can implement both of them together. You can mix them up however you want, mm-hmm. which is, leads to some really weird things. And if if you're not like 100% clear on which approach you're trying to implement, you can get into some really confusing messes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as I know, like a lot of languages are like that, like C++, you can either do object-oriented or functional programming depending on, yeah, depending on, on what, what's best. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's also a lot of hate uh, directed at, at object-oriented programming, I think. Just really? It, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Why? Because, <laughs> like, I mean, like, just objects aren't necessarily the best for every application, right? Because, mm. like, in object-oriented programming, right, you have something called a class, which is a certain kind of object. Is that right? Well, it's like the blueprint, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. you have a class, like a, a table class mm-hmm. that represents tables, but uh, it's it's like the Euclidean geometric ideal of table. You know, it doesn't really exist. Yeah. And then each instance of a table in real life is like its own instantiation of the object. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's kind of like a blueprint that you can can create um, different versions of that have different attributes and and different ways of functioning. And and you can have things that are like you can have like super classes, right? That have like like you could create a super class that's like animal, and then you could create a subclass of that that would be like dog. Yeah. Like yeah. That. The yeah. Chain. Uh, that's inheritance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Inheritance. It's kind of like a prototypal chain. Yeah. Where each each one gets slightly more specific down the chain mm-hmm. yeah can it can it go for more than two levels i don't know if i oh yeah, yeah. no you you chain them like infinitely yeah. yeah happens all the time yeah interesting yeah but but yeah but then within within a class don't you have class methods that kind of act like functions they're just they're just hidden within or not hidden they they exist within the object Totally, yeah, and so that's that's actually kind of one of the necessities for having uh, a paradigm of like a, co- a coding approach is that it has to combine storing data in memory with executing data, and mm-hmm. so that's why object-oriented programming is so powerful because you can store things in the object and you can store functions which can be implemented. Oh, I see. I see. So you get the the data and the the computation part of it kind of in, in the same package. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and so like I I guess like that's one of the things because like there's all these structures that have been developed over decades and like they're super confusing a lot of the time to approach and can be sometimes really tricky to work with, but like they exist for a reason right you know like yeah someone made it that way on purpose and so like many people perfected it afterward on purpose so <laughs> yeah like uh like functions being stored as methods in an object is it sounds super convoluted and like why why even bother but it's valuable because it helps organize what has access to what you know yeah yeah i see so i think i think 
I think one of the things people complain about with object-oriented programming, I think I, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but but in something like Python, which again I think can can do either object-oriented or or functional programming, but mm. uh, you get like all these package dependency issues where like if I, uh. yeah, like I remember when I was <laughs> first trying to learn Python, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna jump right into like machine learning with TensorFlow. And, nope. and <laughs> yeah, it's hard to even get out of the gate because like you run into, you know, yeah, like I said, all these these package dependencies. And mm. if one of them is wrong, it'll spit out this whole long, you know, list of what like this is this module is, is this version, but you need this version. This version is deprecated. This module is like, <laughs> and so you have to like be able to, yeah, uh, figure out which which packages to install and uninstall and and mm -hmm. yeah it can be kind of a shit show i yeah. think that's that's part of part of why people don't like object object oriented programming but that's also what makes it powerful is because it's it's like kind of modular like that yeah so for all you non-techies out there what we're talking about i mean i'm basically a non-techie i started learning uh out of code like two months ago <laughs> um, <laughs> i mean yeah but... same same yeah. <laughs> uh, just a little disclaimer there. Yeah. Uh, we're talking out our asses yeah. for the most part. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I started learning how to code, like, I guess it's, it was like mid to late 2019, basically. Hmm. But like, not, not super like diligently. I was just kind of, oh, I'm going to learn some Python. And like, the hmm. most, the most advanced thing I ever did was like, um, make like a little Alien Invaders game. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, like, just from a book, like, I, you know, I couldn't, like, mm -hmm. reproduce it from, from scratch, but, um, right. yeah. That's cool. Um, I want to really quickly get into our, our our backgrounds and stuff, but before that, I just want to clarify. So, what we, were, what we were talking about a minute ago with, like, packages and, like, needing to rely on packages in order to do object-oriented programming. So all that means is just like there's parts of the code that you need that are, uh, you know, online and you need to download them before you can run the part of the code that you want. Yeah, it's basically saving you from having to reinvent the wheel every time you you write a program because other other people have have had the exact same problems that you've had probably and they've they've written code that's designed to deal with exactly those problems and the programming language is such that you can take what they've written and just kind of plug it in for your own mm. purposes. So your first exposure to coding, you say you were, you're learning in like 2019. Now, are you counting Max? No, that would that would be like, well, I guess I was doing Super Collider. I did Super Collider in, in college. So that would have been like mm. 20, I think 2017. Yeah, so these are both uh, programming languages designed for music and there were courses at CU that we learned. Now, Max, though, that's kind of kind of unique in that it's a visual programming language, so you don't need to worry about like the lines of code and stuff, um, and like syntax, so much. But it's, I mean, it's still basically coding, right? It's yeah, I think I think it's a great introduction to coding because yeah, you don't have to worry about syntax. It's just like the the interface is just like pleasing to look at. It's just like you know, uh, these little uh, object boxes on a white background, yeah. patch cables <laughs> connecting them, and it's it's uh -huh. like it's like music Legos kinda. <laughs> <laughs> music Legos. I like that. Um but yeah, but you can do all the same like, you know, if while 
that all the, all like the control flow stuff you can you can do and um logic and that kind of thing hmm. cool and then and then super collider is is actually like a text text-based programming language that has its own like synth engine built in hmm. but made for nerds by nerds yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's how you that's how you make the real deep boop music deep boop <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe we can uh we can post some links uh to like pieces we've made with we've, with these programs we might think it's totally it's cool yeah that'd be awesome yeah i have uh my, my final project for my super collider class was uh to make a uh a player piano play play this piece so a player piano for people who don't know also called a disc clear is you know a p piano that plays itself and Yamaha makes these ones now that have like a USB in and you can just send it mini notes and it'll play play whatever you send it and so you can use Super Collider to generate like a new piece every time basically based on certain parameters and hmm. so that's part of what I did wow that's awesome <laughs> it was it was very basic as far as like generative music goes like no no like Markov chains or neural nets or or anything like that it was just like hmm. probabilistic basically right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds like a, a good project to the end of a semester course yeah cool so you you did some super collider then you just like decide to learn a little on your own just for fun i forget honestly well i met this i met this guy uh at a jazz jam i think it yeah it must have been like late 2019 um who was like a friend of a friend and he wanted to learn jazz piano and i wanted to learn python and he he like had a, had a tech job so we like traded uh traded lessons oh, for awesome. a while yeah it was, it was cool it was cool and that kind of got me got me started i mean i think i think uh i mean the thing that that initially got me interested in in computer science at all was was the book go to lesher bach which i know we've mentioned hmm. a few times at this point and we may do an episode about it but I'm, I'm a little scared <laughs> being under pressure to like explain it like th th thoroughly and consistently and like uh correctly but the, the the kind of the basic idea is that so okay so so people probably know who escher and bach are escher's escher's the the dude who made, made all the trippy wood cuttings with like the stairs that keep ascending or, or descending and you know the the waterfall that flows up and then you know flows off the top top and then like flows up uphill uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah all these kind of optical illusions that the hands drawing themselves lots mm. of things with like tessellations um and then bach of course is js bach who's who's a uh, really famous baroque composer but girdle who people probably don't know as much kurt girdle he was this mathematician who came up with this theorem called the incompleteness theorem and it has kind of two parts so the first part is that there's no consistent system of axioms that is capable of generating like all the truths in mathematics so what does that mean for uh layman in layman's terms so so um so okay so so people might be familiar with um maybe from like geometry or something, just kind of basic rules of logic, right? So you have like the idea of if P then Q. Hmm. So so you could say like P 
P is is the statement or P is the proposition. Socrates is a man. And you could say that P implies Q with Q being that someone is mortal. And so if you have those two things, you can conclude that Socrates is mortal. So um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm following you. Could you say that again, though, without the P's and the Q's? <laughs> yeah. It's like in plain English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it basically just involves certain statements that, that naturally follow from another, such that if you accept these two statements, you have to accept this other statement, right? So if you accept the statement, Socrates is a man, and that all men are mortal, then you have to accept the statement that Socrates is, is mortal because he's a man, okay. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and actually that one of the... <laughs> One of one of the, the best parts of Good Old Sherbach is actually not written by the author Douglas Hofstadter, but it was written by Lewis Carroll, who kind of uh, provided some of the inspiration for the book. Uh, Lewis Carroll being the, the author of Alice in Wonderland, and this part of the book so is uh, is a dialogue between Achilles and, and the tortoise. If people have heard that thought experiment of, um... I haven't. Okay, so it's 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 related to Zena's paradox, <laughs> uh -huh. where. Um, it's kind of a paradox of motion. So like the the tortoise has a head start, right? It, the tortoise and Achilles in a race. And mm. the tortoise, which is slower, has a head start, right? Yeah. And so you would expect that when Achilles starts running, he'll eventually catch the tortoise, right? Mm -hmm. But you can, it seems to be that you can show that, you know, in the time that Achilles, you know, gets halfway there the tortoise has already moved so much in front of that it's, right. it's kind of a similar similar to the idea of one of Zeno's other paradoxes of of all motion being illusion because you first have to go half the distance and then half the half the distance and then half the yeah half right, the distance, right right so related to that but but basically um so it's a dialogue between these two characters and in, in the book good old Sherbach, every chapter starts with a, a similar dialogue like that between characters and it's kind of a way of of talking about some of the deep underlying concepts in the chapter without getting like too technical. And usually it's pretty, it's like pretty entertaining. <laughs> mm. um, but this, this whole dialogue from Lewis Carroll is about kind of questioning the idea that there are things like that where you have to accept one proposition given two other propositions. Mm. Because you could say like, okay, Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, but you need like another thing to say, given these two, you must accept this third thing, right? Okay. An another thing, you need another thing, like another logical statement? Yeah, another statement or another like, yeah, another another axiom, I guess, rule that you take as as true, just kind of on, the on because, um, you know, you have to have some basis by which you right. base everything on, right? Um, okay. Yeah, so you need some other rule saying that or a statement saying that like given these things given these two things that are true you must accept this conclusion right mm -hmm. <laughs> but then you could all after that you could say you know okay well now i need a fourth rule to tell me that when i have these three <laughs> statements <laughs> that okay yeah um you need to accept the axiom yeah um so th <laughs> there are weird things like that in in logic that lead to the idea that that you can't have a a totally consistent like mathematical description of logic that contains 
where, where every every true statement can be derived. Interesting, huh? I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to wrap my head around that one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I'm still wrapping my head around it. But but that's uh, that's what got me interested in computer science, because I okay. it, it kind of like I I didn't realize there was <laughs> there was this like whole like mystical level of like maybe I mean mystical is a word people would argue with probably but like this whole level of like you know what can we know what is it possible for us to know all this kind of like philosophical stuff mm -hmm. and it also has a lot to to do with um systems that that can reference themselves so the way that that girdle went about proving this theorem was with girdle numbering which is basically a mathematical system you can assign every operation and every like variable its own number such that when you put them together in, you know, complicated formulas of, you know, if P then Q, but not R, that kind of thing, that you can turn that statement into math. And then you can have the formal system, like, make statements about itself hmm. using that numbering system. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then use that to make it to to express statements like this statement is false or this statement is not provable within the formal system of whatever hmm that's that's another mind-bending one i always I, I i i guess i just don't understand like how like like i'm, I'm learning about recursion in javascript where you mm -hmm. reference like a function inside itself mm -hmm. and uh, like you just very slightly change the the input values that are being put into it, mm -hmm. but the function itself remains the same. Mm -hmm. And in so do you you have a, a recursive function, but like on a basic level, like down to the zeros and ones, I I have no idea how that gets compiled. You know how did yeah. they how did they design the language so that you could do that? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, so yeah, a lot a lot of a lot of Gabriel Bach deals with with recursion too and and the author douglas hofstadter talks about how that that it's possible that's that's part of what's happening with consciousness is that that our brain is creating a model of itself and that it's it's the, it's he, he calls these things like strange loops because they exist within hierarchies and like go between two different levels of the hierarchy in a in a weird way how, how do you mean they exist within a hierarchy so like in you know in the human brain right we have this experience of of consciousness that's mm. and so, some would say a free will that's you know the, the level we're aware of right yeah but that's in a hierarchy with the actual you know the firings of the neurons in our brain and the all the chemistry that's going on and somehow there does seem to be something happening where changes on the high level affect the low level and not the other way around right it's kind of what it seems like 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 you could paraphrase that as like your thoughts affect the physical world yeah because your thoughts are are somehow like the basically so like the the you know the the low level brain activity produces the thought right mm. and then somehow that thought gets like fed back into making other things happen on the low levels right based yeah. on what 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 processing happens on that level yeah something like that <laughs> there's that then huh? 
Wow, yeah. So there's this whole level of like existential parallels between computer programming and our own existence. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that's kind of what you drew drew it to drew you to it in the first place. Yeah, and and just also the the idea that like all all our brains are and all intelligence is is likely just a very complicated series of you know logic gates like very very simple operations that are just put together in a very complicated way you know yeah i am or i am not right what (laughs) (laughs) it's the duality of existence versus non-existence and that is the most basic unit of existence yeah i feel like i'm forgetting exactly (laughs) what that we we talked about this at some point right (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm sure this has come up before. I think it came up in our free will discussion as well yeah. as in other cases. Yeah, but doesn't that doesn't that seem like it kind of follows though that that smallest unit is just uh, like like what is the the smallest logical operator you can think of, right? It it's it's the duality. It's the reason why our code is built around zeros and ones. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is interesting to think about. Whether I mean well, so so quantum computers already kind of already are breaking out of that, right? Because mm, they, wow. they can have a because they can have a, a superposition of of zero and one, mm-hmm. in addition. But yeah, it's interesting to think if there's if there's things that are even kind of further off the beaten path. Yeah. Um. So does do do quantum computers? We're jumping all over the map here. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of awesome. This is how conversations go, right? Yeah. Um, quantum computing. So, so as I understand it, the way this is currently being developed, although it's in its extreme infancy, is that rather than having a bit, uh, where where, where your your basic tiniest bit of information is either a one or a zero, so that that means like a binary, only two two options, right? Mm-hmm. Rather, it's like was it cubed is like or how 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 many how many bits of information are there uh what do you what do you mean like let me just google this <laughs> <laughs> i i'm i'm talking out my ass sorry are you asking like how it's implemented or like in yeah, the hardware I, I i guess yeah my my understanding like of how physically quantum computers work like right standard computers are built around the bit which is just like is it there or is it not what zero or one and then uh quantum computing is built around the qubit which is i think like you were saying it's just is it there is it not or is it both Mm -hmm. uh or maybe maybe there's also an is it neither i don't know um (laughs) but my understanding is that that sort of lends an order of magnitude greater of computational power yeah i think i think that's right yeah honestly i don't i don't know a whole lot about it either um one of the one of the big quantum computing guys scott aronson though like is as at ut and um (laughs) my my dad actually does like software licensing for them and so he like licensed his quantum computing stuff to google i believe which is kind of wild (laughs) (laughs) that's cool yeah um, uh-huh. but yeah, I, we, we had this breakthrough within the last year or two, uh, called quantum supremacy, which is basically just showing that for the first time showing that a quantum computer could do a computation faster than a, than a 
classical computer. Cool. And yeah. So the, I mean, the pro the problem with quantum computers and the reason that we don't have them in like a functional way yet is that you have to super cool the the material. Mm -hmm. So that's like a whole that's like a whole thing. Yeah. Not not very practical. Yeah. Pretty expensive. Um, so so I'm wondering though is is it implied then with quantum computing with the qubit that it's sort of performing that operation outside of the bounds of our physical three spatial dimensions it's <laughs> an interesting question i don't know if i know exactly what it means because like our our plane of material existence right it's sort of just like a whole shit ton bunch of particles sort of agreeing on that hey this is the reality right and if they didn't then they wouldn't be there mm -hmm. and quantum computing takes advantage of what particles do when they're not in line with that reality right mm -hmm. like when when they're in the superposition that is not being existent in the physical plane and so it would sort of imply that the computation is reaching out beyond the physical plane Wait. to some other physical plane but but in order to perform the computation <laughs> but but isn't it isn't it both existing and not existing in the physical plane isn't that kind of the point yeah yeah totally um but the knot is is significant, right? Like that knot, you can't ignore it. If if that knot were not an element of it, then it wouldn't be quantum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we should we should do a whole episode about quantum computers because I would I would love yeah. to understand it more. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really quickly riffing off of this. Uh, so there's that book Anathem by Neil Stevenson. And I'm going to give you a big, huge spoiler here, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, it's a really cool book and also kind of pedantic and annoying, uh, but still worth a read because there's some really cool things about it. But there's this whole big climactic scene where there's this guy who it came out of this like really secluded cult where like they don't have contact with the outside world ever the only contact they have is like every hundred years they get to talk with people who have been secluded from the world for a hundred years and the hundred years people are secluded from the world by and only have contact with people who were secluded every 10 years and then they uh down to one years and then the one year people you know get to go outside um, so it's like this really wow. extremely secluded cult. <laughs> um, and like they have this theory that the people there maybe have learned how to access like quantum states of existence, mm -hmm. just like physically. And so they have uh, this guy and they're like doing this space mission where they're like trying to invade this or sneak onto this big spaceship thing. Mm -hmm. And this guy from the cult from the thousand year part is like 
traversing each and every possible or a great number of possible world states while they're in going through the mission Mm -hmm. so there's like a keypad right Mm -hmm. and they need to know the code to get through so he goes up and he types in a random code and it it's right Mm -hmm. because in like 10,000 other universes he also just typed in a random code and they were wrong but the one that was right was the one that evaluated to true so that's the path that he took wow (laughs) (laughs) have have you looked up like physics researchers like talking about whether that could actually like how how based in based you know i haven't looked it up but that's an idea that i've heard also come up in quantum computing like uh i mean fiction about quantum computing so i don't know it could be total bullshit but the idea that like you only need to try like twice like the first time you try is the random one and you're probably wrong and then the quantum computation uh comes through so that you know the next one you already have the answer because some other universe had the right answer and passed it on to you oh interesting yeah that (laughs) doesn't seem plausible to me but like but like, who knows, man? Like, I don't yeah. understand this shit. <laughs> if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. So so okay so so what was what was the thing that got you excited about learning programming? Well, it was kind of a slow burn for me. I started out just a couple of years ago. I mean, a- after Max, which was fun and exciting. Um, a couple of years ago, I decided I want to just see what it's like to try to learn how to code. Maybe it's something I'd want to do. So I audited this class. Well, I just followed along with the course materials that they have online from University of Washington. And this was a course that my friend Nicholas had taken when he was a computer science student at UW. And so he was super generous with his time and like basically played the teacher and I'd do all the assignments and send them to him and he'd like critique me and (laughs) give me feedback and stuff, which was really awesome. And I found myself, I mean, granted I was super bored. I was on the island here in Martha's Vineyard in the winter with my grandmother, like look, looking care, taking af- taking care of her. 
while she was uh, not feeling well for a long period. And so, you know, I was basically sitting at home for a lot of the time alone. And so I didn't have a whole lot of stuff to do, but I found myself coding for eight hours straight through the day. Wow. I ate through the whole semester course in like a month. And you said that was in JavaScript or? The... That was actually in Java, Okay. which is like so much more of a pedantic language than JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I've never coded in either of them. So yeah. Java is a lot closer to like C plus plus though, mm -hmm. which is, that's what you're learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I got into it then, but then the summer rolled along, which is super busy with a seasonal job on the Island, which mm -hmm. I did have at the time. So I just kind of stopped and didn't pick it up again until very recently. Now, I won't lie, part of my motivation that kicked me in the butt was realizing that now I have a place of my own that I have to pay rent on, and Jesus fucking Christ, the cost of living is expensive on this island. It's, like, inhuman. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's a serious problem. There's, there's They call it a housing crisis, or, you know, mm -hmm. there's, like, a billion rich people's mansions that they live there for like a month in the summer mm -hmm. and then they rent out at exorbitant prices during the time that they're not there mm -hmm. and uh it's a really messed up situation uh cost of like food and stuff it's just kind of obscene there's a markup everywhere on the island mm -hmm. every expense like auto auto maintenance and so it's like really really hard to make it here just like break even I, i'm i'm doing music teaching i'm landscaping as close to full-time as you can and i'm basically bringing in just enough money to not be losing m money every month mm -hmm. and so that's, that's not really sustainable so I, I i wanted to start considering careers that would be a good career shift and I would say that probably hearing that you were starting to learn computer science and, and you were going back to school for that was a, a, another big motivator because it just kind of reminded me like, oh, yeah, I could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Good. Yeah. Did you have like a, I feel like I've asked you this before, but do you have like a, like a certain area you want to work in like web development or like data science or mm -hmm. something like that? You know, I'm still learning more about what it's like to work in the different in different parts of development. Um, my friend Nicholas, who who now works at Google, uh, does a lot of backend stuff, meaning lower level programs like Java code that people wouldn't interact with directly. You know, like the user, the the consumer, the person who's on the website or whatever is not going to see this code, but it's like way in the back doing, doing all the, the machine work behind the scenes. Right. And he says that a lot of people himself included who do backend stuff, find front end stuff like web development really fucking annoying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Have you, have you heard that as well? No, I mean, I, I kind of, like I'm not super into web development either. Like I mean, it would be a, it would be a good way to like make money probably, but mm -hmm. 
yeah, it seems like pretty mundane compared to like the things you could be doing in other areas of, of computer science. Totally. Yeah, just like the conceptual things that are happening. Yeah. Rather than like um, make this green rectangle this big, make this red rectangle yeah. this big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but so I've been learning JavaScript lately. I had a little taste of Java and the eccentricities of that. And so far I feel like uh yeah, the front end stuff can be kind of annoying. But also the backend stuff can be kind of annoying. <laughs> like, uh, so 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 the reason the front end stuff is considered annoying is because it's a usually in a language like JavaScript, which is non-compiled. So you get uh, you run into errors. Like maybe you have a function stored on an object, and there's something wrong with that function, so it's not going to work right. But you won't know until that function is invoked. When it's invoked, it will hopefully give you an error message and sometimes it won't give you an error message it'll just like not work right and you have to figure out mm -hmm. okay why isn't this working right Where where's the problem you know mm -hmm. uh, and i had a little taste of that just uh making a, a starting to work on like a little project they have at the the codesmith uh thing that i'm trying to apply for mm -hmm. what, what's the project to make a chrome plugin pretty cool yeah and yeah, it's, it's actually it's really cool it's like eye-opening it's like wow i can i can do i can change these things that are really like like i have really sensitive eyes and i find mm -hmm. that having dark backgrounds and stuff is really helpful for that mm -hmm. and a lot of web pages are like hey here's a bright white screen yeah for you to look at and have hormone problems from that mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But now I can, I, I know how I can start making a Chrome plugin that will automatically change the website theme for whatever website I want. That's pretty cool. And yeah. Yeah. I've never done that something that useful. <laughs> Coding is pretty awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. So, so before we get into the history and stuff, I'll just say that one of the other things that got me interested in, in coding was just the moment that we're living in right now which in which we're seeing this crazy exponential progress of of ai and machine learning and we keep passing all these crazy milestones like you know now we have an ai that can play go and beat anyone and we figured out protein folding and can do like crazy deep fake stuff and you know and gpt3 is a thing and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I basically just had had the the revelation that like, if you had to pick like one area of science that's gonna have like the biggest overall impact in the twenty first century, like, I feel like it's hands down computer science because it's it's hmm. it's pushing every other science forward, basically. Yeah, it's so abstractable, yeah. so relevant in any other field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not even just in science, just in like you know life like the way the way society functions and, and all that stuff yeah and so commerce politics yeah and so if you're if you're someone who's like looking to make a big impact on the world somehow it, it seems like a very promising avenue mm. if, yeah. if, if, you, if you if you use it the right way 
<laughs> well, a, 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 a big impact doesn't necessarily mean a good impact. <laughs> yeah, it's just a big, big positive impact. <laughs> <laughs> I just want power. <laughs> Honestly, like, like I think it's likely that the U.S. government will establish like an AI regulatory body within our lifetime. Like, I bet that's going to be a thing mm. that happens. And I would, I would consider working for for something like that like that that's part of what I, i'm interested in is like regulation possibly mm, yeah seems like a really really important thing what with i mean refer back to our ai episode to hear about like what kind of things could go wrong yeah yeah when i uh you don't follow the news but <laughs> there's been this this awful shit happening at google where like they they had a big like ethical ai team and they fired i forget what exactly her role was but like one of the she was pretty high up in in it um timnit gebru for kind of like murky reasons the paper that got her in trouble was was on like very large language models and like like gpt3 i think um and yeah she, she, they were just talking about the the costs and the problem that a lot of people have, have pointed to with the systems not really being able to explain themselves like they're if you look down it's what's actually happening and like the neural net is just a bunch of like different weights like billions and and it's really hard for anyone to tease apart what those actually mean right and and yeah they also pointed out like how how these technologies could be uh, used to deceive people and there was some kind of i think like technical stuff going on where where they just said like oh you didn't like follow these procedures or something and it kind of seemed like bullshit and a lot of people like a lot of people at google like signed a a letter saying they were they were like really displeased with how it was handled and then google fired like another one of the the ethical ai team like another one of the leaders and so like it's very easy for these tech co companies to like go along with the ethical ai practices for like you know as long as it's convenient to them and then when it's not convenient right. they can just say yeah you're done so i think that's kind of why we need like a some kind of we need like other regulatory agencies right and hopefully they'll have like the the power and intelligence to be able to actually handle these mega corporations yeah yeah which fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> but yeah a, a lot of what tim nick Greber was was looking at was like um like facial recognition models basically being crappy at detecting things that aren't white male faces because they were trained on data sets that you know were, were biased in that way yeah and like that kind of thing yeah it, it seems like a lot of it is is I, I think this is kind of true of like machine learning in general like so much of it depends on the data and whether it's good data and how it's how it's annotated that kind of thing because because like i said that the models themselves and the weights are kind of uh opaque and it's hard to tell what's what's going on yeah right so so I guess, like, just for anyone who isn't familiar out there, like, I guess my, my, my vague layman understanding of how machine learning works is that, and please, like, jump in here because I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> um, but it sort of models a neural network, like the neurons within your brain, and you have these little nodes that represent neurons, and you have some input data that's just like whatever your source is, whatever you're looking at, and then it looks at that and spits out an output 
by passing that information through these neurons and these neurons like you said have different weights which mean they could evaluate to either true or false or like a probability that it will be that whatever that represents right but like the hard thing is that you don't know what that neuron necessarily represents because it's training itself yeah it's interesting they actually i think they have actually started to find that within within these like large language models there are there are neurons that represent like specific concepts like um like chair or something like there's a chair neuron and they found the same thing in our brain actually like that it, it was it's been back and forth for a long time about whether we have like whether i have like an eric neuron in my head Mm. whether you have like a trevor neuron but they found that actually that was kind of what happens <laughs> in wow. in brains and in neural networks which is mm -hmm. is pretty wild but yeah, yeah so there i mean there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different kinds of of neural networks and so like i think machine learning is like a bigger category than neural networks mm. so like all neural networks are machine learning but all not all, not all machine learning is is neural networks from, from what i understand and I think the most basic kind of neural network is like um, you have a set of inputs. So like a, a good example, um, actually we can put a link to this. There's a good like three blue, one brown uh, series of videos on like how neural networks work. And kind of the most basic example is, you know, like recognizing handwritten digits, right? From from zero to nine. Yeah. And so you, you have the input, which is, you know, uh, a grid of pixels that's displaying the handwritten number, right? And yeah. then you have the output, which is either 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, right? Mm. Yeah. And so you can train it by showing it an image and saying, telling it what the number is. And then it, in, it internally corrects the weights so that it gets that number. Mm. And if you do that with enough examples in the right way, it'll, it'll eventually train itself to be able to, to detect them right. accurately. So, so that, that method is like, effective but pretty uh intensive time required on the part of the coder to like you know f actively train it right yeah because you have to you have to annotate the data with like yeah telling it telling it what the what the correct answer is and i believe that's called supervised supervised learning because it's mm -hmm. yeah unsupervised would be like the the neural network it, it, like you wanted to figure out what the categories are yeah okay which is kind of kind of mind blowing that there is such a thing <laughs> where it can basically train itself. Yeah, well, it can it can like, yeah, if it's like looking at a graph where there's like you know clearly like four different clusters of it's like a scatter plot with like you know clear like four clear clusters of of points, it can you know say there are clearly these like four categories of of thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating field, and I definitely want to learn more about that. <laughs>